welcome to another message from Citizen Heights. We are located in the nation's capital, where our heart is to inspire hope, remove limitations, and help you experience God's possible for your life. Join Pastors Michael and Heather Giroux in their passion to help you live your best life. We hope you enjoy today's encouraging and uplifting message. Well, welcome back, everybody. And I want to say again, if extended family is joining you on this uh, extended holiday Thanksgiving weekend, we're so glad that you got an opportunity to join us. We are actually diving into part three of a series entitled A Post-Election Survey Survival Guide for a Politically Diverse Church. It's kind of a family conversation we've been having as a church. And as we continue our discussion today, I want to invite you to turn with me. Let's go ahead to Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, we're going to read verses 19 through 22. And as you find your way to Ephesians 2, um, I want to invite you to employ a heightened sense of self-examination today. What I mean by that is if you're married and uh, you're in church and somebody is teaching about marriage, there can be a temptation, probably not in your marriage, but in some people's marriages, there can be a temptation the entire time you're listening to not really listen for you, for your issues, but rather listen for them and their issues, right? And you're kind of like, I hope he's listening. Yeah, you know, maybe you've brought a friend to church before and you're thinking, I hope they're listening because I know the preacher got them. I hope they were listening and stop acting like, you know, such a fool. But I think today we need to listen for ourselves. Don't listen for someone else. Listen for you. Don't listen to judge another today. Listen to justify. Don't listen to justify yourself today. Listen to allow the holy thing God wants to do in this moment to be all yours. Is that okay? Listen for it to be all yours. God opposes the proud. The Bible says God gives grace to the humble. And uh, with everything that's gone in 2020, everything that's transpired, I, I don't want to be in the God opposition line. I want to be in the God gives grace line. And uh, that starts with humbling ourselves. So hopefully you're able to find your way to Ephesians 2. We're going to put it up on the screen so we can read and have the same foundation. This has been our text for the last two weeks. We're going to continue today. And it says this, Consequently, you are no longer strangers, or excuse me, foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people. You're fellow citizens with God's people. And you're members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Again, we've been calling out all this building language, all this language about uh, assembling and constructing and the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building is joined together and it's in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by a spirit. Come on, I love Ephesians too. It's building language. It's assembling us together language. It's unifying language. And we all need to be reminded loving one another and including one another and staying committed to one another is part of the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And it's what connects you to the chief cornerstone. That's Jesus. What connects us to Jesus is that personal encounter relationship, but that personal thing instantly becomes a communal thing. It puts us in connection with other people. So we, we don't get to do a demolition job on one another or on people who love God just because they're different from us, just because they're diverse from us. And so again, the title, this is really a survival guide for a 
a post-election survival guide for a politically diverse church, but it can be applied to any area of diversity. And our church, Citizen Heights, I can say I'm, I'm in awe and wonder and at the privilege it is to pastor such a great community of such diversity. Uh, on the scale and the spectrum, we have everything represented at Citizen Heights, whether it be educational background or economic background or, or national geographic background or ethnic background or you name it, we have got it covered at Citizen Heights. So today is really a continuation of a discussion we began last week, or two weeks ago rather, to safeguard the diversity of our community. And it takes reinspecting some foundation stones. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't seen the first two episodes, I'll hit a quick recap today. But if you want to dive deep on some of the ones that we've covered in the last two weeks, I encourage you go to Church On Demand on the website or on the app and you can easily refresh that. Uh, those were careful, gentle, methodical, incremental discussions outlining for us the post-election survival guide for a politically diverse church because it calls us to five foundations. So I've shared four foundational thoughts up to this point. I wanna, I wanna do that quick review uh, because again, I just believe that context of hearing it in one set, setting is really helpful uh, to overcome maybe some bad thinking, bad habits, unbiblical ideas. You know, so we'll do a quick review and then I'll share the last foundation today and we'll wrap it up. Okay, so quick review. Uh, first foundation to maintaining unity in the midst of diversity was this. God deserves and demands first place in your life. God deserves and he demands first place in your life. This sounds familiar, of course, because it's from Exodus 20, verse 3. It's the first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. God alone wants first place. So we, we, we made the statement, and I hope it's more than a statement. I hope it's something we're gravitating towards and adopting and saying, that's what I want for my life. And we said this, God alone gets the throne of my life. God alone gets the throne, and perhaps, it, perhaps it's because we live here in Washington, D.C. or around the, the Beltway. We live in proximity to the Capitol, and maybe uh, elections hit us harder or politics run deeper in our, in our bones and in our blood. Uh, maybe it's the constant news feeds that scroll and, and begin to, over time, take their toll. But it seems that politics can way too easily become a god if we're not careful. God is on the throne in full control, and he wants first place in your life. That was number one. Number two, the second foundation was God has called us to be one in Christ Jesus, all right? So there's a oneness that we find in Christ. And uh, we talked about 1 Corinthians 12. It talks about how just as the body is one, I have one body, but there's many parts of my body. My body has lots of members, fingers, toes, arms, legs. And 1 Corinthians 12 goes on to say, um, all the members of the body, though they're many, they're one body. So it is with Christ. And so just like it is with your body, it is with the body of Christ. There's lots of diversity. We're one body, but we're all individuals. We look different. We think different. Uh, we feel different. We have different gifts and abilities, aptitudes. Different things move us, offend us, uh, frustrate us, excite us. Uh, we need our differences to completely represent the heart and the complexity of a really big God. Not one of us has cornered the market on what God looks like and what his heart should be and, and how he wants to move and act and minister in the world. So what happens is 
Something supernatural can happen when we stop demonizing one another. And even better, that would be the bare minimum. Stop demonizing one another. Even better is learn to appreciate the differences. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about, I have need of you. It makes that phrase, I have need of you. And when you realize that we need one another, we impute value in those differences. We, we begin to deal with division and begin to develop the same care. It goes on to say, you'll develop the same care for one another. Uh, that's what God wants for his house. So God deserves and demands first place in your life. That was number one. Number two, God has called us to be one in Christ Jesus. The third foundation was this. God commanded us to love one another. Now, how simple is that? How basic is that? How elusive is that? How difficult is that? But Mark 12 tells us, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's a, that's a big standard because if I love my neighbor the way I love me, then I extend my neighbor the benefit of the doubt. I, I believe the best about him. Uh, I'll assume the best about him, just like I want people to believe the best about me. And if I love my neighbor the way I want to be loved, I'm going to love them despite their appearance, despite their shortfalls and their shortcomings, despite their financial position or ethnicity or uh, political ideologies. I'm going to, I'm going to love them uh, in the midst of their diversity. If you are loved by God, you have the capacity, listen to me, you have the capacity to make a faith-based decision to love the neighbor unlike yourself. Love that neighbor. He's not like you, but you're going to love him like you want to be loved. And if you're loved by God, you have the capacity to make that faith-based decision. I believe God's grace collides with that commitment to obey, and it begins to empower you with a love that's beyond you. And when you do that, I think we're going to be surprised how much more compassion, how much more understanding, how much more peace we're going to possess for one another, not because we suddenly agree with one another. No, I'm not that naive, but because we now genuinely care for one another. That's number three. Number four, God is very inclusive in the, in the diverse people he calls. The fourth foundation, God is very inclusive in the diverse people he calls. So we, we talked about this. Jesus was very inclusive in the diverse political views of people he called by his side and even the disciples he chose. So it makes sense if Jesus is diverse in, in the people that he includes, that we're going to have some diversity within our ranks as well as a church, right? Even political diversity within our ranks. Two of the disciples Jesus calls in Matthew 10 stand out to me. First, there's Matthew the tax collector. And second, there's Simon the zealot. Now, those two men, they stand out to me because they're literally and completely at odds with one another in every possible way. Politically, ideologically, they could not be more different or more at odds with one another. And if you're attending a Jesus-centered, Bible-preaching, spirit-walking, cultural boundary-breaking church, some of the people should look different than you and think different than you and reason different than you and value and even vote differently than you do. That's part of the bigness of God. And that is not a weakness. That is a strength. And it's a joy if you can discover the truth that makes it all work. And we talked about last week as we talked about this fourth foundation, how the key is in Galatians 3. And it says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
What that means is if you've put your faith in Jesus, you have put on Christ. It's a, it's a new identity. And it goes on, verse 28, to say, so there's neither Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female. Why? Because you've put on Christ. That's my identity, right? It's no longer my gender affinity or my ethnic centricity or my financial power economically. It's in Jesus and it's in his family because we serve a God that's greater than our divisions. We serve a God that's greater than our differences. Jesus called a tax collector. Jesus called slaves and women who were marginalized and not even part of the conversation in his era and prostitutes that were the worst of the worst and thieves. And Jesus, he had room for everybody and possibly worse by today's standards and by today's thinking. Jesus was including and dining with tax collectors. A guy like Matthew, who was working for an oppressive, totalitarian, colonizing government that was oppressing Israel. Jesus called Matthew that guy. And I imagine he, he and then he called Simon the Zealot. Simon, was his entire existence was to dethrone guys like Matthew. And I imagine Jesus, as he called both of them and included both of them, he probably made them sit next to each other at dinner. And, and bunk out together. And when they were traveling, like in Luke 10, when it says the disciples were sent out by two, they probably didn't even have to check the bulletin board for the trip assignment. They already knew. They didn't even need to look. Yes, we know. It's going to be Matthew and Simon together again. Why? Because Jesus has a way of putting people in our paths that require us to live out the essence of the gospel in everyday life in a relational dynamic. Don't be surprised. If Jesus puts people in your path that need the, the grace of God to run through you, if Jesus had room in his life and on his team for both a radical nationalistic zealot like Simon and an imperialistic Roman-influenced tax collector like Matthew, then we need to make room for people who think different than us too. If Jesus had room for people known to be morally compromised, people known to work for an anti-God government, people, that I have to make room too. And if you're a Christian, if you are of, if you if you call um, the Bible and if you call Jesus your Lord and the Bible as your playbook, you have to too. A heavenly vision takes a divine strategy, and it takes a supernatural grace. We have a heavenly vision. We have a divine strategy, and we have a supernatural grace. The strategy we find in the Bible, the grace we find in Jesus, and the vision we find is his church to represent God's heart. Jesus set the example, and we won't change our pursuit of that supernatural reality for his house. We're going to stay on course for that. I know there are churches right now that are, that are on the verge of fragmenting because of the, the topic we're discussing today, but unity isn't an optional accessory to faith. It's not something you can pick and choose. It's not a buffet. Unity is central to the heart of God, and it's God's master design plan for you and for me. Come on, that's number four foundation. Are you ready for the fifth and final? I think you're taking notes. Uh, if, if you can uh, go ahead and post something on social media, let us know what God is saying to you so we can hear you and echo that amen of what God is speaking. But get ready. Fifth foundation, final one is this. God requires you to do unto others as you would have them do to you. 
Now this is gonna sound rudimentary, but we're gonna apply it and it's, it's, it's rather transformative. Number five, God requires you to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And if that sounds familiar, it's because Jesus taught this concept in Matthew 7, uh, verse 12. And in Matthew 7, he says, so in everything, like everything, no exclusion, no exclusion, no, no political exception, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Well, how is that applicable here? In a word, I want to center in on, on just one word, mischaracterization. Mischaracterization. No one likes to be misrepresented. Nobody likes to be mischaracterized. No one likes to be taken out of context. No one likes to be maligned. Listen to me. No one likes to be maligned with accusations of evil intentions when rational explanations exist. Do you hear what I'm saying? No one like, I'm gonna say again, no one likes to be maligned with accusations of evil intentions when very rational explanations exist. What that means is do not assign evil intention to those different than your political affiliation, right? Think about it, this is, a, this is basic, but it's a terrible two-edged sword, and that sword swings both ways. It, it seems so obvious that, that I feel like it could almost be insulting to, to our intelligence to present such a simple idea, but I see such a tidal wave that demonstrates a deafness to this reality right now. So, so let me illustrate by using plain, direct language. Personally, I believe it is, it is divisive and it is disingenuous to characterize a believer who votes blue as an accessory of fill in the blank with the worst plank or worst personality trait of that, of that person's party. I think it's disingenuous. I think it's divisive to characterize them by the worst plank or worst evil that you can conjure or accuse from their party. Now, some people will disagree with me, but I believe Christian voters can have biblical values that resonate within the progressive platform other than the worst anti-plank you and I can find. In the same way, it's equally divisive and disingenuous to characterize a believer who votes red as a blank, insert the worst plank or personality trait or excess of their party. I know some will disagree, but I believe Christian voters can have biblical values that resonate within the conservative platform other than some diabolical agenda. I think that's clear on its face, but you wouldn't know it. The reason, and the reason people assign evil intention to their political opposition, I think it's fairly obvious. We, we paint and mischaracterize and misrepresent with a broad brush. We, we misrepresent and mischaracterize their political, our, our political opponents with the party's most jaw-dropping evil or excess, whether real or manufactured, so we can achieve the moral high ground. See, we know we need to achieve the moral high ground because if, we, if we're able to achieve the moral high ground, then it gives us moral authority to pronounce judgment and employ ultimate avenues to silence them. That's why we attempt to do it. I mean, what wouldn't you do to stop Hitler in his tracks? That's the logic. Surely the intended end must justify the means. I mean, we're doing this for righteousness after all, right? But instead of Hitler, it's a brother or sister with an opposing political view. And instead of genocide, it's support of any number of possibly reasonable and justifiable policies from either side. 
See, when we embrace, this is really lifeboat ethics. And if you, if you know ethics and you know some of these things, it's, it's an embrace of lifeboat ethics in application to a marketplace of ideas. And, and in this lifeboat uh, marketplace of ideas, we only allow our pre-approved seats at the table of competing thought. And we forfeit the ability to see people and treat people with humanity created in God's image. And of course we have to because we must dehumanize them and criminalize them if we're expected to kick them off the raft in the minutes that follow. And whether we know it or not, we must commandeer and usurp the place of ultimate judge if we're going to shove the expendables into the deep any moment. In short, to do all of these things, we have to reject the gospel. We have to violate the Bible. We have to begin to depart from God's vision for unity in the midst of diversity. And ironically, as we do it, and as we find our seat as judge, we unwittingly, at best, at best, I'll say unknowingly, and at worst, rebelliously, when we, t when we find our seat as judge, we displace the one true righteous judge. This is not difficult to understand why it's done, but it's very difficult to understand how someone who loves Jesus and been a recipient of his grace and been a recipient of him including us in his plan and his purpose and been that, that servant who came and was forgiven this tremendous debt and we then go and turn and go out and, and we find someone who owes us just a small fraction and instead of forgiving them as we've been forgiven, instead of not judging them as we escape judgment, we grab them and we lock them up and, and act with a moral superiority while they themselves need our grace and why we ourselves find ourselves in complete disobedience to God's word. There are so many factors that go into how someone votes, but cherry picking the worst possible example of the party platform or a caricature of a current political representative in order to make accusations and conclusions of the ultimate morality of an entire voting block, half of the country, this violates the royal law of love. This violates kindergarten 101. Do to others as you would have done unto yourself. This violates the, the essence of the gospel and it causes a rift that will only widen. Come on, I had this talk. If you want to know the truth, I had this. You might be saying, well, oh, pastor, come on. Why, why are you getting so political? First of all, this is not a political conversation. This is a theological conversation about unity within diversity. Um, but I've had this talk before with our church. And in fact, I had it in the year 2008. And here we are in 2020 having it again. And it, in 2008, the church was predominantly a red voting church. And I had found out from one of our members that he was being harassed and, and made to feel unwelcome, unwanted, less of a Christian in our church because he was excited to vote for President Obama. And, and I heard that and I couldn't believe my ears because I thought, well, we read the Bible around here. We know there's lots of reasons people vote for things and we're not going to demonize their vote. Romans 14 says, let each one of us be fully convinced in our own mind. And that is not to the issue of truth. It's the issue of prioritization of, of different issues. And so I couldn't believe my ears. And as a church, we had a family conversation in 2008. We had a, we had a family conversation like this conversation about unity in the midst of diversity and the inclusion of different political ideologies. It's a lot of ease. Wow. It's, <laughs> but I want to tell you, 
uh, in 2008, the conservatives in our church responded really well. I think maybe one of them left and stormed off. I'm not even sure if that's why that person left, but you know, they, they, they didn't like it maybe, or, or they didn't believe it, so they stormed off. But the rest for the most part, at least on the surface said, let's build this together. This is God's dream. This isn't a reflection of, our, of, our, uh, of some political action committee. Come on, this is, this is God's eternality. This is his sovereignty. This is his dream for his people, his church, not just for what he wants to do for you, but what he wants to do through you in the world around us. And uh, I saw a great response in the church in many ways for the last few years, but that's a foundation. And we responded well. And we have been a church that has been for everyone, big, wide open arm. Uh, but now as I see the percentages and the pendulum swing, I think, I think now it's safe to say we're predominantly a blue voting church. Uh, but we have again the same issue, albeit roles reversed. And I can only hope and pray that we hear God, we yield to his plan, and we have the same response today as we did in 2008. And that, that response is God do what you wanna do in my life, my identity is not in my political, uh, tribal uh, place that I find myself. My identity is in Jesus. And if it's there, then I've got room for everybody. Everybody's a conversation. If, and if you're demanding people exit the public square, or worse, demanding people exit the house of God because you can't process the concept of individuality and diversity of thought, you have to look inward right now. That's something you have to examine for you, but do me a favor, do yourself a favor. Examine it with the Word of God and the Bible as your parameters. Those are safety lights that bring you into safe harbor and to stability. There's nowhere, listen, there's nowhere you will be able to run to escape this. If you don't rectify, this is the essence of the gospel that tempers us to bring us into community. If you don't deal with it now, there's nowhere you're going to be able to run to escape it. It will follow you to the next town, to the next church, to the next group of friends, and the next spiritual community. We need to be careful to not be the church of exclusion when all of us reacted to that and needed a place, a family and community that would take us as we were. Maybe not as much as this person wanted us to be down the road. Maybe not as advanced as this person in their biblical knowledge or the evolution of biblical thought into their actual worldview. We need to be careful. We do not demonize and marginalize someone who's not where you're at and who may never journey to where you're at because they're living where they're at and God can accept them and use them right there. The question is, can we? Can we? Where do we go from here? We uh, reinspect our Bible foundations. We reinforce our Bible foundations, not just as a church. I can't do that. You know, I can go out and inspect the physical foundation of this building. But we all know the church is not a building. It's each of our lives joined together. And so the only way to inspect a foundation is for each one of us to do some soul searching, to examine our hearts and, and, and ask us, are these five foundations wobbling? Are they cracking? Do they need reinforcement? Because God deserves and demands first place in your life. God has called us to be one in Christ. God commands us to love one another. God is inclusive, so inclusive in the diverse people that he calls. And God requires you to do unto others as you would have them do to you. We need to recommit to the central theme of the gospel. Jesus is my king. Jesus is on the throne. 
There's no four-year limit on his term. And there's no jurisdictional boundaries of what he can get into. He's, he's messing with the filter and foundations of my life and your life. And we've got to say, bring it on. It doesn't matter if I have a difference of opinion on how to best accomplish his ends. Today, I say the Bible wins. I align my spirit and my life and faith and obedience and the grace to change. The grace to change, it just follows. At my house and at Citizen Heights, we're going to set our eyes on Jesus and we're going to make room for people. People who are in process, people who are imperfect, people who are like us, people nothing like, like us at all. That's God's dream for his house. And I believe our votes matter. I, I truly do. And I, I believe you should be a great citizen. I believe why you vote what you vote matters. But I also believe, and I more fundamentally believe, our faith in a sovereign God and our commitment to building people matters much, much, much more. Hebrews 12 says, everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that which cannot be shaken will remain. There's been a lot of shaking lately. Come on, maybe you've felt it, you've been shaken. But Jesus brings life and stability and unity. So I wanna pray a prayer of invitation right now. And I wanna pray really a convocation of blessing over your life, over your family, over your thoughts, uh, because I believe God has something in this moment. The enemy want, intended it for evil, but God is going to use it to strengthen and to unify. Amen? So God, right now we surrender. Jesus, we, we, we thank you that it, you said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And today we're reminded that all of us are terribly unqualified to throw at our fellow man, yet we all too easily find a stone in our hand. So we invite you today, Father, in your careful way, realign us with your word. In your careful way, help us and speak to us and give us a grace. Father, today we respond. We're walking out of the fog. We're realizing our faith foundations did get wobbly, but we're placing our faith in you and you alone. And for those that are unsure right now where they stand, I wanna pray a second prayer together for you. Uh, the good news of the gospel is this, there's room for you. God's big, wide open arms includes you, no matter what you've done or what you haven't done, no matter where you've been, no matter where, where you should have been, the grace of God is not something you will earn. It's not something you can pay for with human effort. It was already paid on the cross by Jesus. So you do, you do from this point forward, you walk, you walk with an understanding that you're not attempting to earn the favor of God. That was a grace and a gift freely given to you. But just like any gift, you have to receive it. You have to reach out and take it. And so right now, there's, there's many I know that are gonna pray this prayer with us. It might be the first time you've ever prayed this prayer. It might be a recommitment moment that you need and uh, everything's been shaken. But I'm telling you right now, the foundation, the cornerstone of Jesus, that's what you've been missing and that's what makes the difference. Pray this prayer all together, nice and loud. Dear Jesus, I give you my life because you first gave me yours. Thank you that I am loved. Thank you that you love me just as I am, imperfect, broken, confused, proud sometimes. Jesus, you love me as I am, but you love me too much to let me stay as I am. So say it nice and loud, I give my life to you. You are my Lord, you are my savior. 
Now I want you to say this boldly. I am a Christian. By grace I've been saved. In Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, amen.